So they will be uh, splitting the stadium between them, which means uh, LA will have a game every weekend for them to not attend. Hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we're going to be looking at a lot of teams moving and a lot of coaches moving around the league as well as some feedback from last week's games. Going to review them in depth, we're going to take some questions from you the listener and then move on to the championship round game previews. So hey guys, got Connor here, we've got Harry. Hey. And we got Ronan. Hello. So lads, what's the crack with yourselves? Any scandal? Well, I'm just at a war with my uh, internet provider. Mm. Yeah, I tried to get some old bills off them, and they were like, oh, that'll be €12.50 Euro 50 a pop, and I need a force. They're trying to charge me 50 quid for four sheets of paper. That's been an interesting way to spend my afternoon arguing with them on social media and on their support channels, and they're not a... Uh, they threatened to ban me, so that was that was a... Solid. Yeah, that was use help, very helpful of them. Mm. Uh, so yeah, not impressed. Richard Branson, you're a dick. Uh, yeah, but sure. I think most people kind of knew that already, didn't they? Uh, yeah. Although he is quoted a lot as these like good manager things, but good manager doesn't necessarily mean good customer service. Yeah, well that's it. I mean, he's got nothing to do with it though, at the end of the day, does he? Just yeah, pawns it off on somebody else and goes anymore. to hang out with all his bikini models like yeah. his hot air balloon. What about yourself, Fitz? Any scandal down in Cork? Uh, no, quite enough. Saddened by this weekend's events, but I'm sure we'll get onto that later on. Yeah. Sad times, Connor. Sad times, sad times, ahoy. Oh, well. Oh, yeah, real, real sad. I, I totally empathise with you guys. Yeah, well, what the fuck? You got a fucking bye week and you still <laughs> yeah. fucked it up. <laughs> we did our best, yeah. Like, we'll, we'll get on to it later on, but, like, I never thought anyone other than the Browns could fail in a bye week. But. So, we'll fire into the news, I suppose. We've got a fair bit to get through. Uh, we've had a couple of teams moving and teams potentially moving, so we'll fire into that to start. Uh, Chargers are moving to L.A., they have decided to take up the offer of becoming a tenant in Bronchi's development, the Ram Stadium there. So they will be uh, splitting the stadium between them, which means uh, LA will have a game every weekend for them to not attend. This ends a 55-year time in San Diego. Goodell says they did everything they could to try and stay there, apart from be loyal or useful to the people or try and work with them to get a deal done. So, you know. Or spend his own money. You know? yeah. yeah, or spend his own money. Um, so they're going to play in the StubHub Center, which I think is just hilarious sounding. LA Galaxy's home field. So it's a much smaller stadium, only about 25, 27,000 capacity. Might be a good call, given what the attendance so far in LA has been to have a smaller number. Yeah, I'm excited to see them not sell out a 27,000 seater. It will be impressive. That said, uh, if they thought like you know, like Raiders fans and stuff travelled to their previous <laughs> games, like, so what do we make of this move, lads? I suppose to an extent, the moving was inevitable, right? No, I mean, it, not, not, none of these moves are inevitable in the sense that there were definitely things that could have been done. Like Rodan very rightly said, the Spanoses have been willing to spend their own money, as you know, some teams have been willing to do. Obviously, uh, the Robert Kraft and the Patriots being the, the prime example of that. It, it wasn't inevitable from that sense, but once they decided that they weren't going to pay for it, it sort of became that way. Mm. The city didn't have the funds and the people of the city, like quite reasonably didn't want to allocate a huge part of the city's budget to this. And the team's been shitting on them for about two or three well, years. Well, yeah, there is that. The ownership certainly did themselves no favours, but it was still a quite a lot... Well, there was still a, a loyal fan base there, even if attendance had dropped off. Uh, so the problem is they got into a cycle where they were constantly putting out a shit product, and they were like, oh, the fans don't care, so we can just move. It's like, well, the fans don't care because you're putting out a shit product. If you do that in LA, you're going to find yourself having the same problem much, much quicker. The Rams already are playing to a half-empty stadium, and they had not even been there for a year yeah. because they sucked. So that's kind of a problem. It's also a... A move that I think indicates that Spanos is interested in keeping the team. This the Rams is, a, this moving, is just a profitability move. Isn't it, it is, and it's not like the, the where the Rams moved and, and like real estate in England was bought bought up, or again with the Patriots, where Rob Kraft already owned all of the land around uh, the stadium at the time. 
and they were able to take advantage of this. They're basically moving to a situation where they actually have very little potential for growth in their property sector, which, of course, is unfortunately a rather boring but very significant part of all of these ownership things. Once they're settled into Inglewood, that will add about a billion dollars to the value of the team. Yeah. And that will put them in a position to sell. And I think this is kind of fecklessness, plaything uh, approach to the team, which is just a real shame for the fan base. But once they decided they were going to do it and once they said the owners were going to agree, it was just a case of when rather than if really yeah no because i must say like looking online and stuff like i've already seen an influx of uh of ex chargers fans becoming fans of uh the chiefs and the raiders <laughs> specifically so they can beat the chargers twice yeah, a year yep. realistically fits is there going to be much of a traveling fan base with them or are they gonna have to re-establish and do you think that can happen in la uh, like right now it doesn't look like it but i think you know obviously emotions are an all-time high it, it's almost worse in terms of geography because they're moving only a couple of hours up the road. But for the for the Denzians of San Diego, that's even worse because now it's in your local rival, basically. Yeah. One of the areas, like there's various college rivalries that are based around that particular uh, set, set of assumptions. So it's kind of like, it almost hurts more that they're close, but so far, basically. And yeah, like I think, I think from that perspective, it's going to be incredibly difficult to convince these fans to get behind it. And I think, yeah, it'll probably divert to other teams. Like it's not like, it's not like there's a lot of teams concentrated in that part of the world. Like the Chargers brand isn't really that exciting. There's no way, like, there's no sense. Like, with the Raiders, for example, there's a kind of an aura around the Raiders that they're, like, there's that kind of something to the Raiders that means that you might support them or you might follow them somewhere else. But the Chargers thing was really much associated with being a San Diego team, not that being a Charger was exciting. Except for that awesome uh, fight song from the 70s. <laughs> yes. Like, and the fact that they're making complete hames of this doesn't exactly, uh, doesn't exactly inspire that, you know, this is the team that's going to turn things around. Because based on talent on, on the squad, it is a good squad, but then you look at they're going to be playing in a 27k capacity stadium. You see the fum, the amount, like huge fumble that they made on changing the logo, which I think they changed oh, yeah. three times in one day. To be fair to them, I think they said that the logo that was put out wasn't a logo logo. It was just someone in their social media department mocked one up, but then they completely fucked up the handling of that afterwards. But like what that speaks to is a team that really doesn't want to make the decision, but even though it knew this was coming, hasn't really put the prep work in try and convince those fans to come along with them. If they just go to LA and expect people to show up, they're probably going to be disappointed. Uh, they might get away with it because, you know, like the NFL is such a massive product, but there is a sense that if things go bad enough, even being in LA, they might actually end up regretting it just from a purely financial perspective. Um, so I, I think I think it's definitely a problem for them. I think they're just, it's definitely a situation where Spanos obviously was very much involved with the Mark Davis thing to go to Carson and said, you end the Crunky ended up winning, and basically he's ended up getting basically put into a corner, and has decided to throw his toys out of the pram. There's like an article, interesting article on this, uh, which basically said, you know, there's a difference between being able to buy a Ferrari, I mean, it would actually take care of Ferrari. It's definitely a case that Dean Spanos is in the lower tier of NFL owners, where like he has the capacity to like own the team, but to make actual big decisions and actually change the direction of that team. He isn't really rich enough to do that. Well, this is the interesting thing, because the other team that's looking to move in the same division is the Raiders who are looking to move to Las Vegas. And one of the main reasons that people say that there isn't the level of animosity towards this move is because literally their owner doesn't have enough money to make the kind of... He wouldn't be able to put in the money for the infrastructure. He's got a net worth of somewhere in the region of $500 million rather than the kind of billions that most of the other owners have. So him needing money isn't that he's choosing not to build the stadium himself. It's that literally he can't. What do we make of this? So Vegas seems to actually be on the cards. Uh, They're taking it to the owners for for final approval. The money is in place to put this stadium there. The planning is on the ground to work in Oakland until... 
they decide to move. I presume this means we're going to see the LA Raiders. Oh, sorry, the like, LV Raiders. I, this is this is the most interesting move. This is probably the move which ten years ten years ago obviously would never have happened. But obviously the NFL is a lot more comfortable with the idea of a team moving to Vegas. Obviously the whole gambling thing and the kind of American cultural stuff towards that is kind of just really weird. I think we saw that with the whole daily fantasy stuff that happened last season. That obviously most of them are probably actually in favour of it, but they can't say that because America. As I said before, the Raiders is a much stronger brand than the Chargers. I think you can actually take the Raiders brand and you can put it somewhere else and people would still be attracted to the Raiders. You know, I think it's got a lot of distinctive appeal that kind of people might be willing to pay for. And like in a tourist town like Las Vegas, that's probably really important. You're supposed to put on a show. Whether they'll have a native fan base for the team is an open question, but will they be able to fill up stadiums and will they be able to get corporate like corporate people to, to buy up the seats? No doubt about 100%, that. 100%, yeah. Like yeah. That definitely and, seems like an economically viable option rather than trying to shoehorn a second team into LA, right? Yeah, and basically the only question now, because basically the owners are, are more or less in favour of it now because the Oakland situation is pretty much as bad as, as the... Uh, San Diego situation in terms of getting public approval, it's whether they end up going with Sheldon Adelson or an independent proposal, I think, that they, they cooked up with some Goldman Sachs advisors. So, like, there, there's some debate over which of those two they'll take, but both of them are considered to be economically more than viable. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that they're going to play in Oakland till they go away. It'll be interesting to see how the fans react to that and whether they will be maybe less animosity than we're going to see with this chart, that we've seen with the Charger situation where people were are literally burning their, their stuff outside the stadium. This might legitimately be the only time we ever hear someone say the Raiders fans are, have less animosity than anyone else. <laughs> uh, what about yourself, Harry? Any thoughts on the uh, LV Raiders? Yeah, I think Ronan's covered off a lot of it. It does kind of suck that there's a um, the history of that team. They have moved before, obviously, but they're, they're so embedded, I think, in the culture of Oakland. Uh, it does kind of suck they're moving, whereas obviously San Diego, you have a city that's seen as more of a transplant population and so on. Vegas is going to be fine, I think. All these concerns about it, it, it's a, it, it is quite a large metro area when you factor in places like Paradise and so on. Um, there's enough people there to definitely sustain it if they can, if they can keep up uh, interest in it. And that's going to be difficult to do on some levels, but also, like Ronan says, it has a strong brand. It will attract people to travel. You would expect a good chunk of the Raiders fan base, who are a very good traveling fan base anyway, will probably keep coming over to it. Far enough, but it's not a million miles yeah. away. It's not like they're moving to the other side of the country. And that association is probably still going to be strong enough. Obviously, I, I do think it's funny, obviously, the trips between Sheldon Adelson and Goldman Sachs. It's like, I, I don't know if I want to do a deal, do a deal with the devil or with Beelzebub kind yeah. of approach to it. But it, it, is, it is basically the, the, the Raiders upping their criminal element to yeah. a new class. <laughs> it's a different, different type of criminal. You know, you've got, a, got, a, got more of the, the white-collar criminal yeah. involved there. This is probably, probably better set up to succeed in some ways than L.A., it's mm. less of a sort of, this is just a massive market, so we're just going to lump into it and see what happens, and we'll stick two bad teams there yeah. and see what the crack is and how it pans out, even though in the past, obviously, it hasn't panned out very well. And given that you have such a high population of tourists and so on coming through that city, it, it's definitely a sustainable move. And I think long term, it, it could actually end up better than the L.A. move, yeah. uh, although there are more obvious risks associated with it. It seems like the sort of thing that's less at the whim of a fan base that has an awful lot of other things going on, an awful lot of other distractions, and has previously shown itself to not... Things go bad, not that interested in an NFL team. Yeah, no, of course. Speaking of teams moving, let's look at some of the coaches that have been moving around. We've had a number of head coaching appointments uh, since we spoke to you last. Denver have appointed Vance Joseph, Miami's defensive coordinator, to be the head. Highly sought after, but the question obviously is, given that they're a team who have had a good defense and a... Offense, is this the right step for them? So, uh, Fitz, I'll come to you on Denver. You know, Vance Joseph, very highly sought in this round of things. He had a lot of talks with most of the open positions. 
the, the, the Miami defense that he led this year wasn't considered to be that elite. Like it was considered to be, I think, in the 20s in most categories. So there was definitely a case where there's something else going on. And of course, I think the biggest thing is that Vance Joseph had uh, had previous connection with Kubiak. Basically, they, they've had experience of working together. So this kind of strikes me as kind of a continuity move. It's like, you know, Kubiak, we respect him. He obviously, the players respected the, 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 the organization that he brought. And if you bring in someone in the same mold and he's respected by that, then the idea is that basically that, that would be continuation of that, of that successful coaching tree, effectively. The logic of that, to a certain extent, makes sense. But like based on his performance, based on what he's actually done in the league, it was still surprising that, that he was so highly sought. Um, obviously, maybe there's things that you know people, people in the know in the league are aware of or have seen from him that would give them confidence. That, that, that perhaps the numbers don't, especially this year. But, you know, that's, that's how a lot of decisions are made. They're based, made, made a cut, made on reputation, and he has a really good reputation within the league. So it'll be interesting to see whether the, the reputation ends up being the correct way rather than judging on the results he's perhaps had as an actual coordinator in the league. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, Buffalo have also decided to move in a defensive direction. Following the Ryan tenure, they've brought in Sean McDermott. Again, this is a potentially interesting one as they have we would probably say underperformed of late, uh, but this is who they've decided to to go with. Normally, as as uh, Fitz mentioned, you kind of see a swap over from when you have a not so successful defensive coach, you try and move to bringing in an offensive coach, especially one where potential in an offense that isn't being realised. So, do you think this is a good or a bad show for them, Harry? Well, firstly, I think it's always nice when one of the men of 1916. <laughs> <laughs> for our international listeners, learn your fucking history! Yeah, no, I actually think it does make sense because as much as you can say moving from a defensive to an offensive coach and the offense is a problem with that team, I think the first and foremost concern with that team is that they've got a potentially or theoretically really good defense mm. that was not performing at all. So bringing in a guy who we seem was able to get the best out of that defense in Carolina actually makes sense. Like, right, we have the talent here. We have a guy who we know can work with talent and can succeed with talent, uh, although admittedly they had a bit of a down year this year, but he's shown over the last few seasons anyway, even when the Pats were struggling, they were defensively quite a tough team. Bring that over and try and actually sort out the defense, because that can be the bedrock for this team. Now, as you say, there's still a lot of instability on the offense, there's still a lot of problems with Doug Whaley still hanging around, and now what's happening at quarterback and so on, and whether or not they're actually going to be able to resolve that, and problems on the O-line that they still have. But this is, to me, this is a move of saying, we, we are trying to play to our existing strength. We know we have this strength, let's bring in the guy who we think can get the best out of that, and then we're going to have to just hope the rest sort of falls into place. Yeah. So, yeah, from that perspective, I, I completely understand why they've done it. And um, it will be interesting to see whether or not what we've said during the season holds true, that the problems were just Rex Ryan attitude problems, mm. or whether or not there is something a little deeper going on in terms of the underperformance of that defense. And uh, we'll get a real picture of that, I think, as McDermott settles in. Yeah, there is also, I suppose, questions as well about the idea that there's queries at the GM position, there's queries at what they're going to do with the quarterback and stuff. And given that there's probably further instability down the line, not tying a not tying a head coach to maybe an offense and a a a, a player selection that uh, that might not be a long term solution for them might give them more civility in the long run. San Diego have picked up Anthony Lynn, Buffalo's offensive coordinator. Uh, this chap known more for his run than his pass, so potentially it's to try and get the most out of Melvin Gordon and kind of support Philip Rivers in his last couple of years. Uh, do you like this hiring, Fitz? It's interesting, you know. Obviously, he's going into a situation that is far from optimal. Like, obviously, your team is moving and stuff like that. Like, if things go badly, you're going to get a lot of flack very quickly, and that's kind of a problem uh, for a head coach who doesn't have that much experience. Like, obviously, we're talking about a coach 
who was the running backs coach for Buffalo until uh, a few games into the season. Well, we were proven wrong in that case, but we said that was a terrible decision of time, and it actually he did manage to turn the offense around and make a decent offense as the season went on. But this is a major step up. This is a rapid rise for him. But obviously he's been trusted by people and he was obviously highly sought, like Van Joseph, by a lot of other teams. So obviously people in the league believe that he's a, he's a natural born leader and all these other cliches. But you would have worries there again that this is a coach that you're busy pushing up very quickly. Like I think the, the logic once again makes sense. I think you know Rivers is getting older and I think it's been noted that Rivers has definitely gone into decline towards the end of seasons, which might indicate that he's been overworked and having to carry the team on his back. And that having someone who knows how to and who will make a major bit of focusing on the run game is perhaps the right fit for this team offensively to try and eke out the best that they can out of Villa Rivers. And it'll probably still be a lot of good for Villa Rivers. I'm just saying, eke out the best that you can over the entire season uh, going forward. So this is an incredibly tough position for Adam Lynn to put him in, in for. But I think the opportunity was probably too much for him to, to pass up. But this is probably one where I'm like, the, the, the deck is stacked against him. Yeah, of course. And then uh, the Rams have made two two decisions. So they've hired Sean McVay from Washington. Very young option, but he did a very good job bringing up Cousins. I thought it was interesting that they also brought in Wade Phillips as their defensive coordinator, but have decided to give the head coaching role to this very young upstart. Uh, kind of a bit of a surprise in a lot of respects. What do you make of it, Harry? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. I think he's the youngest head coach in the modern era. Um, he's 30 he's 30, 31. He's 30 now, and he'll be 31. Uh, he'll be, so he'll be 31 during next season. Sorry, just close to what you said you would have expected the other teams to do. This is a team that, again, rode on its defense, but has appointed an offensive guy if the defense mm. wasn't working very well. So there's obviously they're obviously looking for somebody young and to try and invigorate this. I think they're trying to create a young offense here, and I think that he's mm. going to have a lot of leeway to create that offense because there isn't a huge amount of talent right now on yeah. that team. I mean, you've got, look, Kenny Britt's fine. Like, Jared Goff hasn't impressed, but look, it's been a very, very difficult situation for him. We don't know how he's going to develop. So obviously they're hoping that he can do the same kind of job he did with Kirk Cousins uh, in, in Washington because that was a very impressive turnaround for that offense once he was promoted. So they're obviously hoping that that will, that will be part of what they do and that will also, if they can get that kind of thing working, that will make things easier for the run game and so on, as mm-hmm. we've seen. But there's an awful lot of, like, personnel decisions to be made on that offense. So bringing in Phillips makes perfect sense. If you're like, okay, so we really need to change the offense, and we've decided that the route we're going to go down to do that is through appointing this head coach, who we saw shake things up in Washington, who we think can do the same here. We saw like a young quarterback who was known as being mediocre, but potentially talented. We've got a guy who has not played well, but we think is potentially talented to develop him. The defense just needs to take care of itself and needs to not be held back. Mm. Here's a guy who is, in Wade Phillips, who has done a phenomenal job in Denver, like Denver's defense probably has more talent than LA's. I don't think that's in question, but you, there's so many good pieces on that Rams defense. Yeah. But if you can get a guy who can organize them uh, and get them to play like we know they can, get them to do it week in, week out, this goes from being a team that is randomly really good to a team that is consistently very, very tough to beat. And that will give the more scope on the offense to take the time to work out what they want to do if the defense is keeping them in games. And that, I think, is pretty, it's a pretty straightforward strategy. And I think it... it Makes sense, providing that McVeigh is able to replicate the success. If he isn't, there's obviously going to be problems. Look, the tongue's off to a young guy who doesn't have a lot of experience. If it goes sour, it's probably a lot easier to move on than not. Yeah. So I think it's actually a relative, bizarrely, quite a, quite a sensible move from the Rams in this in this regard. This is an acceptance that there's going to have to be that rebuild that needs to be done. It's mm-hmm. like, this is something that needs to be ripped up. We're bringing in a guy who we think is going to rip it up, who is young, who is dynamic, who can change things. So hopefully for their sake, the front office play ball with that and they accept that they have swung and missed an awful, awful lot on the offensive side of the draft recently. And I think we're going to see them plug a lot of draft capital into particularly the O-line uh, into trying to get wide receiver help. Even getting like a solid receiving tight end would make a huge mm-hmm. difference to that team. Um 
to move forward. So it's an exciting pick, and I think this is going to be really fun, the combination of having, again, if they can get the pieces, a young, dynamic offense with a guy who we know can run a real dynamic offense, and the guy who is just such a good defensive coordinator. This this is the platform for success that LA need. It, it, it's really good, and I'm excited to see how this one pans out for them, because amid all the fuckery and all the mistakes we've seen with both teams moving to LA on every single facet of their of their organization last season, this is a rare spark of hope that something good might be about to happen down there. Yeah, so outside of the head coaching stuff, uh, we obviously mentioned there Wade Phillips is brought in as the defensive coordinator for the Rams. Uh, I'm a bit surprised to not see him being a head coach somewhere, but uh, this is potentially a very good landing spot for him, as we said, talented spot. Other movements around this would be Buffalo's brought in Leslie Frazier, a former Minnesota coach. Tampa Bay extended Mike Smith. Uh, Miami bring up uh, Matt Burke, who was their linebackers coach, to be their D coordinator. Greg Roman is now a senior offensive assistant for Baltimore. Mike McCoy, as we mentioned earlier, hired uh, as OC for Denver, coming from San Diego, and Houston have fired Greg Godsley. Uh, so we're going to mention Wade Phillips there. So the next biggest one would be uh, Mike Smith, as he was expected to be uh, to be in contention for the spot. So Fitz, uh, they've extended him as D coordinator to try and take him out of the pool of potential head coaches, right? Yeah, like I think it, it, it's the case that well, there's only one position open at this point, and I don't think uh, San Francisco would yeah. appeal to him. Uh, <laughs> it, it'll be interesting to see who, who San Francisco does appeal to, but... Um, no, like Do you um, like a project because I've got a project. Yeah, see, even even Josh McDaniels kind of oh, I need to go and focus on the playoffs now. <laughs> he doesn't want it either. Uh, but yeah, no, it's all it's like it's not like uh, Mike Smith's done a good job with that Tampa Bay defense. They definitely came on towards the end of the year, although there's slight worries over how they finished the year. There's talent on that on that Tampa Bay defense. They were definitely putting it together, so I don't I don't see any reason why they'd want to get rid of continuity. Tampa Bay is knocking on the door of being a you know a relevant power in the NFC, so I don't think at this point they're going to blow anything up. I think it's just it's just a good solid signing, and you know it's good to see Mike Smith did get work. Obviously, if they do better this year, expect him to get even more calls next year or more people waving themselves at him looking for his attention. Yeah, cool. Uh, like obviously we'll we'll go through a few more of these in depth in the off season when we're going through our kind of division by division looks. Peace out to, to George Godsey. I've never heard of you, but obviously an offensive <laughs> coordinator fired from Houston. Someone had to get the chop, so Yeah. <laughs> and it's in Brock Osweiler. <laughs> <laughs> We had one or two retirements or potential retirements, I suppose is the best way of saying it. Uh, Vince Wilfork has strongly indicated that he's going to retire this year. Uh, there was a really nice touch at the end of that game where they took Wilfork off the field a play early just so all the Pats fans could cheer him off and give him a standing ovation. Big Vince, I suppose he's, he's your uh, your love affair, so uh, tell us a little bit about his retirement. Beautiful man. It was. It was actually really nice. Like say at the end of the game, it was actually great to see the respect. And like when he was going down the tunnel, people were like leaning down to high five him and things like that. And you consider like after that week seventeen game where Romo came in for a drive and he was walking off down the tunnel, Dallas fans were like jeering him, yeah, waving, waving mascot jerseys. Yeah. I'm like, you know, you even hate your own players, man. But um, like I think Vince Wilfork is absolute class act in the league. He was a guy who came out of college with some of those notorious sort of red flags around him that he might be a problem guy. Throughout his time in New England and even through his time in Houston on the downslope of his career, he's been an absolutely exemplary uh, leader like Jadavian Clowney was saying a few weeks ago that, you know, everything on the field I'm learning from J.J. Watt and everything to carry myself off the field I'm learning from, yeah. I'm learning from Vince Wilfork. Um, so he's, he's always been a leader in that regard. He's always been a mentor to the younger guys. Uh, what's going to be really interesting with him is, is Hall of Fame. And, like, this is a guy who, to me, and this is probably just my bias showing this guy, is a, on talent, probably a first bout Hall of Famer. But he's a nose tackle. 
Yeah. It doesn't have stats. There's no stat for clogging the lane. There's no stat for um, drawing double teams, triple teams. There's no stat for holding your ground. Is like, there a stat for looking damn sexy in a pair of dunkaroos? Oh, yeah. <laughs> stat for uh, ESPN <laughs> Body Magazine covers, you know? Oh. Yeah, he's incredible. I mean, actually, there's one clip I've seen that's, that's so good from, I think it was last season, where Don Harry Poe was in to block mm-hmm. on a uh, in a game against Houston yeah. and ran into Willfork. And it was like, <laughs> just like what happens when two moons collide. <laughs> like, shockwaves from the impact are picked up on a seismograph. But no, he's been, he's been an incredible player. And I mean, if you look at the role he's done, and even in the downslope, even in this, which was a time where he, you know, he wasn't a regular starter playing in certain packages, he was still there. He was still always out on the island. He was still always holding his guy. Like, he would not be... You never saw him getting pushed back by O-linemen. His ability to do that is just remarkable. And it's not a flashy, it's not a sort of a glamorous kind of thing, but he's done that consistently over a really, really long career. And the other thing about this is this whole thing with the NFL, with, with the Hall of Fame, they say, oh, if you know the stats, you do, are you part of the story of the NFL? Mm. You can't tell the story of the NFL really now in the modern age without talking about this Patriots dynasty. And you can absolutely not tell the story of this Patriots dynasty without Vince Wilford. Mm. Without him, he has been, the, he was for someone on the rock at the center of that defense. It's a nose tackle, and you have to scheme for this guy. Like, that's how good he is. You have to say, we can't run this up. We're going to have a lot of trouble running this up the middle. We have to double team. We have to triple team. And when you do it to J.J. Watt, everyone loses their goddamn mind. We do it to a nose tackle, nobody even really notices. That's the kind of thing he did. And that's it's, it's really good in a way that he gets the fan recognition that he was such a, a, a fun guy and a popular guy and a lovely guy that people know who he was. But, like, this to me is, is one of the all-time greats at his position Probably the best player in his position in the modern era mm. when he was at the peak of his powers. And again, even on the downslope of his career, was still very, very good. So he'll be he'll be sorely missed for his personality, for his skills. And to me, if this guy doesn't end up in the Hall of Fame, that's going to be an indication there's something seriously wrong with that voting process. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, another person who's strongly indicated they're going to retire is Devin Hester. We'll be talking about him a little bit in the games coming up as he signed for the Seattle Seahawks for that uh, playoff game there. He's said that he's kind of told his wife that this would be it. Again, a guy who might potentially be Hall of Fame, especially no one really cares that much about returners when it comes to that. One thing I think I heard it mentioned uh, during the week is one of the things that might stand in his favour is given his timing of finishing up and the fact that they're changing kickoff regulations and stuff, it'll make it very difficult for anyone to beat any of the any of the records that he currently holds which might stand in his favor being at the tail end of what was kickoff but as i said we'll discuss him a little bit more detail later on and also probably during the offseason when we get confirmation uh we'll do a quick roundup of the injuries uh, green bay morgan burnett's injured his quad might miss the next game Devonte adams hurt his ankle but should be fine and jordy nelson they are unsure as to whether or not he'll be available for the game Having seen it, I would have guessed not. But I, uh, I, in terms of Atlanta, Adrian Claiborne's bicep tear is done for the playoffs. Julio Jones injured his foot but is expected to play. Been complaining about that foot for a while. And in terms of Seattle, Deshaun Shedd, ACL tear, eight-month recovery, so that could affect next year. But most importantly... Richard Sherman had an MCL injury that they have not mentioned on the injury report for a very long time, and it looks like Seattle are going to get into some trouble for this. Isn't that right, Fitz? Maybe, like... <laughs> <laughs> like, like Russell Wilson had MCL uh, issues, and that didn't stop him playing. So, you know, it's not really an injury at all. But it's, it's, more the, it's more the reporting, similar to how the Colts got in trouble for not reporting yeah. Andrew Luck's ribs a year or two ago. Sure, it's not real. It's why, it's why the Patriots report the entire team is questionable every week. <laughs> no, yeah. just to avoid any issues. <laughs> kind of hard to go back and investigate something they would have to find the evidence that he was sufficiently injured that it was actually a problem like it's like you know there's that cliche that by the end of the nfl season every player is playing hurt so it depends on whether the hurt here qualifies as sufficient that he should have been in the questionable category or have some kind of injury designation so it'll be interesting to see if they get punished the fact that they came out and said it publicly 
means that they probably think they can get away with it. But the fact that they're you know nationally, they're like a national team, one of the bigger teams in the league uh, in terms of their coverage, probably means that they they may end up getting a, a wrap across the knuckles for it, maybe a, a fine. Yeah, uh, like, that. like I said, I'm uh, sure we'll see more about this as we as we move on. I'm but sure uh, the media are going to treat them very nicely over this. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> Just like they treat the media. Yeah, because <laughs> they haven't done anything to draw ire from the media this week. Good God, we're not even going to mention yeah. them calling out that reporter over their cancer. <laughs> That was not good. Also, some Oreo players calling out Tom Brady saying, hey, you got such an easy run. Try coming to our division. A division with a far worse record and even worse team. I get what he was going for. We it beat is the a Cardinals song. with our backups. I know. But like it is it is it is a bit of a mess. Like it's it's the potential for this to become a bigger issue because they treat the media aggressively and the media will want to take a shot back at them is a potential that we'll probably end up covering over the off season. But on that cheerful note of uh calling out cancer survivors, uh onto the game reviews for this week. So first up, we've got Seattle Seahawks at Atlanta Falcons, 20-36. to Matt Ryan had a phenomenal day, 338 yards and three touchdowns against a Seahawks defense that felt the lack of Thomas in their back end. This was not without kind of fighting opportunity for the Seahawks to, to get involved. Devin Hester had somewhere in the region of 900 yards of special teams negated due to penalties. <laughs> and because of this, it also resulted in a safety too. Essentially, after the, after the safety went down, that was all she wrote. It was not a strong performance from... Russell Wilson, 225 yards and two touchdowns, but with two interceptions. The run game didn't get going, which allowed kind of a dynamic scoring and strong enough defense from Atlanta, especially in terms of Ken O'Neill, who had a great game, uh, was able to kind of close out the game from that point onwards. Essentially, as soon as they got a lead, they started to put the foot down and there was no real coming back from it. I know injuries played a part here, but surely offensive line play was a big issue and that's what Seattle have to focus on going into the offseason. When you look at the when you look at the tape, effectively the the line was consistently getting beaten by fairly basic stunts. Even on the four man rushes, they were still getting pressure on Russell Wilson on a consistent basis. Like you know, we've we've gone over the offensive line stuff for what feels like three or four years at this point, and uh, definitely since the start of the podcast, it's just one of those things where like the team is currently spending on its on its offensive line about six to seven million. That's less than most teams spend on their left tackle. It's one of those cases where where a team, like a team who has success for a sustained period of time, ends up having to sacrifice some units to try and pay the people who are considered of core to the entire team. Obviously, Russell Wilson got paid. Obviously, players like Jimmy Graham are getting paid. Obviously, the defense, you have Sherman, you have Bobby Wagner, you have Earl Thomas, you have Cam Chancellor. You know, there's a huge amount of talent on this team, but that talent ends up getting hit somewhere else. They're in a tough spot, like, They'll have a bit of a cap room this year, so maybe they'll make a move to try and get someone in at one of the tackle positions. I think they will probably persist with the current middle of the line. I think they, they, they invest in a first-round pick in a Fetty. I don't think they're going to throw that away after one season. Uh, Glowinski has been in the system for a couple of years. I think they like him. And Justin Britt has been the you know the, the, the single kind of bright spot. They brought him into centre after shuffling around the rest of the line. Uh, but the two tackle positions have been an absolute disaster. Uh, most of the most of the year, and unsurprisingly, one the right tackle has alternated between Bradley Sowell, a player who hadn't played for two years, and uh, you know Gary Gilliam, who is a you know is a, who's been there for a while, but is a converted tight end and has never really kicked on from what seemed like a promising start in 2015. Uh, and then on the left tackle, of course, you know, along with Jimmy Graham played basketball and all the other things you you may have heard. Uh, George Vant is a basketball player who never uh, never played football in college, and therefore. It's a situation that, you know, obviously 
it showed at certain points. He ha- he definitely has the physical potential, and I think the physicality is incredibly important in the Seattle uh, zone blocking scheme. But you know, it's hard not to come like this. This this whole theory is based on the fact that Tom Cable, who has now been talked about as a as a head coaching candidate for 49ers, is this kind of magic offensive line person who could turn all of these like like spare parts and turn them into an effective blocking unit. It hasn't come to fruition. Like a few, like when they had the Super Bowl, you had Max Unger, a Pro Bowl center. They had Russell Okun, who you know has his issues, but was like a serviceable left tackle. They had talent there, and over the last three or four years, they've let that all pass away, and now we have a purely basically exploratory offensive line, and it's shown, and it's cost them. It cost them in the Arizona game, which cost them a wild card bye. It cost them in this game, and it's hard not to see that that's the major issue. I think there are mitigating factors, like uh, Eric Thomas's replacement, Stephen Trell, got duped uh, by DeFonta Freeman a couple of times in a very embarrassing fashion, which kind of turned big plays into huge plays. Uh, but yeah, I think the offensive line, until they fix it, and considering the injury that they had to Russell Wilson, there is definitely a cap of what they can do in offense. And if the defense can't stay busy elite, then that's a major issue. So yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it's going to be a major question for the Seattle fan base all offseason. I'll be interested to see what they do about it. Harry, from Atlanta, we saw a high-powered offense, eight different pass catchers in this game, but not much out of the run game. Now, obviously, they got involved in the passing, but there wasn't much happening at all on the ground. Is this a function of Michael Bennett at all in this Seahawks line and just scheming against them, or is this a concern moving forward? There's an element of, of concern, perhaps, but bear in mind, this, they also struggled uh, when they played them during the season, threw the ball on the ground. They did better this time, like Tevin Coleman looked okay, although Devon Freeman was largely shut down. But what this uh, Atlanta offense has done well all season and we've, we've mentioned this several times before, it's the diversity. And what they have in those two running backs are guys that, okay, if the run game isn't working, we're going to use the short passing game as a substitute for the run. And they're good enough to do that. And we saw that here, that they were good enough to do that. Freeman was able to get several big runs. Uh, Coleman got a touchdown through the air. They're able, when those parts of the game don't work for them, while that would be a concern in isolation and is certainly an effect of uh, Seattle having, for all their problems, still a very good defensive line for the most part. They're able to find other ways to get those players involved. On that level, I, I don't think there is a huge amount of concern because they've shown that they can sort of work their way around it. And that's probably going to... We're probably going to see a bit of that next week without getting too far into preview because Green Bay are also pretty sold against the run. So again, we're going to see mm-hmm. them, I think, find other ways to utilize those weapons to move around. It was the thing we've seen them do well all year. It was like, okay, Julio Jones is limited. So, you know, we have other things that can work. We have the short passing game. We have Tyler Gabriel. We have Mohamed Sanu, although I don't think Sanu saw a lot of action in this game. Uh, he got a touchdown. Their offense is good enough that if something breaks down, they can find ways to replace it, which is is really awesome. It's also worth noting, I think, that for all the focus on Atlanta's def- uh, offense, we also saw in this game the defense has improved this season again. But again, we can see guys like Vic Beasley are doing very well. And like I said, Keanu Neal. And it's a good thing nobody listened to our draft podcast because that, <laughs> that was a pick we had some questions about. But uh, he's been he's been fantastic in the back end for them. Defense is good enough to buy themselves time to work things out on offense. I think that's what we saw in this game is that they were struggling a little bit early on, but once it became apparent that Seattle weren't going to run away with it, they were able to sort of take the time to settle in and, and move things around. Uh, one thing I actually want to mention is the guy who got the safety, back up center. So obviously Russell Wilson got tripped up by his own lineman. That was that guy, did not, I can't remember his name, he had an awful game. But uh, the guy for um, Atlanta who touched Russell Wilson down and actually was credited the safety as a backup center that they had put in a nose tackle for that day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it tells you everything you need to know, but like... Oh. This team is going to have a much tougher time than against Green Bay, given that if they start taking time to figure this out again, it's not going to be a situation like Seattle, like Green Bay, know how to uh, stretch their legs and saw it and come on to this. But 
on the other hand, it does show that you can never really count this team out, and they'll always they're always going to find ways to mm-hmm. make things work. So credit to them. You know, this is a very exciting team, so I think we're looking forward to seeing them. Oh, big time! Play again. Big time! The next game's going to be class. Texans at the New England Patriots. The uh, the bye week that wasn't as much of a bye as we want. Surprising to say, even though this was won by 18 points, it was not a hugely convincing job by New England. Uh, Brady was sub was under 50% completions. He had two interceptions. The team had 98 yards rushing. Edelman and Hogan uh, were were kind of bright spots on the offense. Edelman 137 yards. Hogan 95. Obviously, Lewis. It's the accolade of scoring three ways, uh, but didn't have a monumental game. Uh, Brady had his two interceptions, but not to be outdone, Brock threw three uh, and was sub 200 yards again. This is a very boring and deeply disappointing performance from uh, the Texans. Like Defense and special teams kept them involved, but they were never really a threat uh, with the Brock Lobster under centre. Because any time they even came close, he just threw a pick or fucked it up. Um, Ronan... With regard to the Texans, they've got this $72 million boondoggle. You're the GM of the Texans. You're going to have approximately $20 million in cap space next year. How do you go about fixing this huge clusterfuck? I think first, it's a it's a risky move, but I think you, you punch your ticket, you, you make the cap room, and you enter the Tony Romo sweepstakes. I think uh, Denver, I think, is his preferred place based on all the reports, but I think you could make uh, I think you could make a good offer, obviously, to Tony Romo to come over to Texans. The only issue, of course, would be trying to convince uh, the Dallas Cowboys to actually allow you to do so, yeah. uh, considering the interstate rivalry. Although, the, you know, I, it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how big that rivalry would be and how much they respect Tony Romo. But, like, in terms of places for a good quarterback to land, it's hard to think of a better place than the Houston Texans. They have a good, a decent running, like a good running back in Lamar Miller. They have, you know, great offensive pieces in DeAndre Hopkins, Will Fuller, etc., they have an elite defense, uh, even when it's missing J.J. Watt. They'll get him back next year. This is They have a great coach, Bill O'Brien, who has managed to get you know some performance out of what is probably the worst quarterback, maybe alongside Blaine Gabbard, who started any games this season. If that doesn't work out, uh, you're going to have to have a camp battle. Maybe you should draft someone. You know, It's very hard to say the state of the draft class. Like Quarterbacks tend to be the ones who go up the, the draft board quicker than anyone else. If you find someone you like, draft him and have a camp battle. Like Tom Savage is already within the plans. He already beat out Brock Osweiler once. You got Brock Osweiler. You get something together. There's nothing really to lose at this point. Your quarterback room is a mess. And you know that if you get a quarterback who's serviceable, who's middle of the road, then that could be enough to push his team well into being a contender in the AFC. Yeah, I think it's a tough position as a, as a GM. And especially because you were basically forced to take an Osweiler by the ownership, or at least that's what the rumors said. Yeah. So it's a tough position now, but I think you've got to make aggressive moves. You've got to sort this out because there's just no way that the fans are going to keep except having Brock Osweiler back as the unquestioned number one QB next season. You've got to make something happen. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100% on that. There are even there are even options of looking at trading for other people's rookies and stuff. Uh, there's a couple of talks about potentially looking at New England's backups yeah. as well because you can get a year out of them on very, very low-cost contracts. Long-term, yeah, I think you're right. They need to start swinging for these fences. Harry, this was a messy game, but it was enough to win. Uh, like The same could be said about Steelers' performance, which we'll talk about in a bit, but... Like was this rust? Was it an aberration, or like how do you how do you rationalise this performance? Uh, yeah, it's difficult to to rationalise. New England aren't a team that usually take other teams lightly. Um, we saw, for example, the season there was no reason for them to hang up forty points on the Jets, and they did because they were there. Belichick obviously after the game and his quote seemed understandably furious with the team's performance. It wasn't good at all. Partially, I think you do have to credit Houston's defense. Um, our O line. I mean, talking about Tom Cable's O line, Whisper Dante Scarnetia. 
uh, who was brought back and has actually worked wonders with the O-line this season. Uh, the O-line didn't hold up, particularly in the middle. Andrews and Thune had very, very tough games, particularly when they moved Merciless to come inside. Mm. And the same when Clowney was coming on the inside. It was very, very difficult for New England to stop that pressure from coming home on the middle. We saw Brady sort of rush into some throws and sort of fire off a few like contestable balls that he wouldn't normally throw, which... Fortunately, for the most part, uh, our receivers were good enough to, yeah. to corral or the other uh, the Houston Texans weren't good enough to take advantage of. But it was very, very rough. And we know that like most quarterbacks, um, with the exception of like Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson when he's on form, when you put them under that kind of pressure, they, it's very difficult to play. That's how you stop quarterbacks. And Houston's uh, D-line and linebackers did do a very, very good job of that and sort of exposed that although the O-line is much, much better coached than it was, it's still not the most talented group in the league and... There's really only so much you can do sometimes to stop a guy like Jadavian Clowney uh, when he decides to take on your, you know, your rookie, your rookie left guard, or your um, center who's pretty, who's pretty mediocre. Offensive and offensively, that sort of results in things being messed. Defensively, it was a lot better. I mean, it's pretty difficult to judge defense when they're going up against uh, Brock Osweiler, but they did enough, and in the end, we're able to obviously set three interceptions at the end of the game. Really made the difference in this one. Um, Logan Ryan McCourty, and I think uh, I can't remember who got the third one. But um, it, it was enough to take advantage of a, of, of a poor team to beat them. And we sort of were able to make it comfortable in the second half after struggling for a very, very long portion of the game. I said beforehand this was going to be a Dion Lewis game. We saw 15 touches to Dion Lewis, but he wasn't tremendously effective. He did score three touchdowns, but he also, he also fumbled twice. Mm. So there are all kinds of things going wrong. So in many ways, it was kind of like a, this is – it can't get much worse than this, right? You've got – Sloppy turnovers, you've got the O-line crumbling in a way it hasn't all season. Everything looks kind of a little bit out of sync. So I don't imagine this will be a consistent problem, and I think that given the coaching staff, I don't think they will allow this to be a consistent mm-hmm. problem. But it's certainly concerning that the, the weaknesses of this team got, got exposed against an, uh, an unexpected opponent, and I think might have uh, g- give Pittsburgh a little bit of an insight into what they might want to do next week in terms of where they start applying the pressure up Brady, on Brady. So fortunately, Pittsburgh aren't the best at applying pressure up in the middle so far this season, so yeah. that could work out for them. But certainly, certainly a few questions there that we thought had been answered that might not might not actually have been. No, fair enough. I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, next game up, Packers at Cowboys, 34-31. This was hands down the best game of the playoffs so far. Uh, ups and downs for both sides. We had everything from Tony Romo is warming up. When is Tony Romo getting in here? To Dak Prescott getting red hot, putting the team in his back and just slinging the ball around. Dallas scored 18 points in the fourth quarter, tying the game up twice, once at 28 each and once at 31 each, and left it with 35 seconds on the clock. But unfortunately, that is just too long to give Aaron Rodgers, it would appear. Elliott and Bryant had exceptional games and led the Dallas attack. Jared Cook and Ty Montgomery combined for three touchdowns in this game. It was exciting all over the field, both defensively and offensively. Uh, It was great. Uh, Harry, would you have spiked that ball? No. Yeah, no, I mean it's the same thing when we saw we see it with Aaron Rodgers, see it with likes of Drew Brees, see it with Tom Brady. You can't give some of these guys any time on the clock, and Aaron mm-hmm. Rodgers in the playoffs is the last guy you want to give time on the clock to. Yeah, so outside of that, then like what more could this Cowboys team have done? But... They, they could have woken up earlier. Be uh, woke. There was a be woke. <laughs> yeah, they could have been more woke. Got Colin Kaepernick in his court. No. <laughs> This was a weird one because they did sort of figure it out as the game went on. And a lot of it is to do with the defensive scheme. So Rob Marinelli tends to, has run a very sort of quite conservative scheme. And that's part of that's his, his, his sort of instincts. And part of that's the personnel, as you've mentioned, they're a solid unit, but they don't have like outstanding disruptors or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they tend to sort of try and just play really solid defense 
uh, bend and break a bit and sort of use their coverage above anything else. That doesn't really work against a guy like Aaron Rodgers. So it wasn't until the second half that we really saw that defense start bringing the pressure, start making Rodgers have to improvise more because as good as Rodgers is at improvising and he is the best at it, he's still better when he's got a clean pocket. Everyone's better when they've got a clean pocket. Everyone's better when they have time to go through their reads, progress and throw and not make something up on the hoof. They spent so much of the game allowing him to do that that it basically left them in, in a hole mm. and that they were trying to climb out of. And it's a inc- remarkable comeback, regardless of all else yeah. in Dallas in the fourth quarter, to get a game that seemed to be completely beyond their beyond their control, almost do enough to force overtime or potentially win the game. Mm. Um, so this was disappointing for them, I think, in terms of where this team could have gone. It's really exciting for them that the team got this far and pushed the Packers this close. I think there's a lesson, there's a lesson learned here, you know, and that's the... You can't just stick to your game plan and assume it will work when you're up against. And in the playoffs, you usually will be, or you have a much higher chance of being up against somebody who is transcendentally good when they're under pressure, when the chips are down. Mm-hmm. And you can't give that person any kind of opportunity. And that's like they spent far too, right about the end of the game where they gave him an opportunity. They spent way too long in this game giving Aaron Rodgers opportunities to to run up the score and sort of mm-hmm. try and put this beyond them. That that I think is it was it was the key factor for them, and that's the sort of thing they've got to look to get better at doing going forward if they want to change this team from like a contender to being what like potentially based on the talent that this could be another dynasty in Dallas. Oh, 100%. Fitz, this was kind of the reverse of last week for the Packers though. Like last week they were slow start, figured out what they were doing and then just went to town. In this one, Rodgers only had one touchdown in the second half. They seemed to work out what was going to work against him and he wasn't able to adjust. Like if it wasn't for a penalty that negated the second one, we'd actually be talking today about how Aaron Rodgers threw two interceptions and cost his team this game. What drives this inconsistency that we've seen in the last two or three games and can they either fix it or can it be sustainable? I, it's kind of a weird situation. Like like Aaron Rodgers came into this game with a clear plan. He saw a team which was inexperienced, had a lot of players and stuff like that. In the first quarter, he saw him get a couple of free plays by basically exploiting a defense that was trying to substitute out, trying to do some exotic things, perhaps, and get pressure on him. And he consistent, like he got a busy touchdown, Richard Rodgers out of that. And he was looking like classic Aaron Rodgers in the sense of, uh, you know, knowing the game plan, exploiting the rules, maximizing the return that he can get for basically nothing. Uh, and then, as Harry pointed out, towards in the middle of the game, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, like, they added a bit more defensive pressure. And I think it was also just a bit of confusion. Like, you're 21-3 up. You're supposed to go conservative, but you, you have no run game. Like, you're putting out Ty Montgomery, who, you know, is good, but isn't really between. Like, when they stack the box, you're going to stop Ty Montgomery. There's not much you can do about that. So, you're like, your power back is a fullback in Rutkowski, who hasn't really shown anything. And Christy Michael basically didn't show up in this game. It's tough to know what to do. And it was kind of a situation where the Green Bay Packers are almost better when they're under pressure or when they're trying to rack up the early points. And that's where the situation they were in against the New York Giants the entire game until the very end where they, like, obviously they pulled the bar off ahead that they were comfortable. But at that point, the game's over. So it's kind of a case that the Green Bay Packers only really have one gear, and that gear is Aaron Rodgers, do magic, please. <laughs> and that was fine. Uh, but when you're up against the Cowboys and they're desperate, they're going to pull out every single stop that they can, and they got to a bit, especially because there were a couple of injuries along the Green Bay offensive line. Uh, both their TJ Lang and Patty Carey were both dealing with injuries during this game, which obviously affected their performance. Uh, so I think it was a situation where the O-line getting injured, Dallas applying pressure, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because when the chips are down, when they actually wore you know, a level again, where the Dallas Cowboys could actually win the game by taking it overtime... Aaron Rodgers, give him the ball, let him do magic. And what did he do? He creates magic. And obviously now we, like, you know, he comes off a sack 
and then turns around and makes what is now the famous people comparing to Michael Jordan, all this type of stuff. Basically, you know, draws it up in the sand, all that kind of like, like you know, yeah. schoolyard stuff. Drawing up a play himself, letting it, letting it develop, and then passing a pass that no one else could possibly do in the league for an amazing catch, an amazing end of the game. Yeah, they're inconsistent because they don't really have a way to protect the lead. And Aaron Rodgers isn't the kind of quarterback who's good at protecting the lead. And you think, like, if they had played more conservative, he wouldn't have had, he probably shouldn't have thrown those kind of passes that could be contested and go for interceptions. That's not the identity of the team. That's not who they are. That's what makes them such a great team to watch. And that's what will make them a great competitor in the next round of the of the playoffs. Yeah, no, of course, I'm with you on that entirely. Final game is the Steelers at the Chiefs, 18-16. to A uh, close defensive game of football in Arrowhead where the Chiefs came up short on offense. Uh, Lev Bell got 170 yards on the ground. He had 100 at halftime. Uh, Big Ben got 224 yards with only one interception in the air. Uh, the Killer Bees had to let Chris Boswell score all 18 of their points. By the way, I fucking hate the term the Killer Bees. KC's defense was allowing yards. It stiffened up the red zone, but they never really got past warm-ups on offense, to be honest. After a promising first drive with lots of exotic looks and fun plays, uh, they finished the game with 172 yards passing, 61 yards rushing, uh, two touchdowns. Fitz, on the Steelers, this is a win, but one that they won't be overjoyed with. Um, like, Was it a scheme issue, the weather, or like, how can Pittsburgh avoid this in the next round? Of the teams that were left at this stage of the tournament, like the best defences were definitely the Texans and the Chiefs. And the New England defence is solid, but it's not a pressure-based defence. It's more of a, a contain-based defence. Uh, and we saw against the Texans, New England aren't so much the pressure. While the Kansas City Chiefs are well-known for doing pressure and obviously are very well-known for having a ball-hawking secondary, although they didn't quite get that. But, you know, in this game the conditions somewhat made this uh, the most optimal strategy. But in this game, you know, the strategy was give the ball to Lev Bell. And Lev Bell, add up the clock, add up the yards, add up everything. The only issue is that they couldn't finish some of these things. Like, you know, like every situation, like football is a situation, is, is a game of small margins. And it's definitely a worry that Ben Roethlisberger wasn't able to convert all of these red zone chances that they had in some actual like touchdowns that to basically salt this game away way before it should have been. Like the defense has really stepped up in, 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 during this run towards the second half of the season, but the offense right now it, it still struggles. It, it's had struggles in the red zone here that do give you cause for concern, and they do start with Ben Roethlisberger. But the fact that Lev Bell basically had more yards, I think, for most like up to the end of the third quarter than the entire Alex, like the, the entire Kansas City Chiefs offense, tells you that it doesn't matter. If Ben Roethlisberger is a bit un- underneath under the weather, if Lev Bell is given the ball, you can take the game away from the other team. And you know, 170 yards on 30 totes—that's just the kind of play that basically can help you win a game, even when you can't finish. And the fact that they had to rely on the field goals is problematic. But I, like, honestly, like I think, like the defense is good, and the defense is probably uh, third best. And the, like, the NFC defenses are all shit. To be honest. Like, I think the defense in Pittsburgh has stiffened up enough that they don't need to be explosive. I think they'll definitely be more aggressive than they need to be against New England. But here, they, I think they just believe Kansas City aren't going to score on us. We can hold in this Kansas City offense. So let's play conservative. Let's play what we need to do and just take the points. In a different game, like at Foxborough, I could see be much more aggressive. Obviously, they have a coach who's more than willing to do so in that situation. But it felt like a, a game where they were like, let's grind this out. Let's win this. This is like in the ice. Let's just win this the old-fashioned way, the Pittsburgh way. And in the end, it was good enough. Uh, obviously, they got a bit lucky towards the end. But, you know, with Lev Bell, you can get away with it. Yeah. 
Now, actually, I've got to ask you, Connor, since you're a Chiefs fan, I think I think it's probably fair that you, you address this than I do. Like, this was another, you know, relatively successful season for Kansas City. Uh, all things looked great during the regular season and uh, it got this deep into the playoffs. But we saw the same things we've always seen raised ahead. We saw timeouts being used ineffectively. We saw poor game management, like being unable to push the ball downfield, abandoning the run game for large stretches of, of time when the team wasn't even that far behind. That final drive that took off so much clock and didn't even kill the game out. Yeah. And we saw a lot of stupid penalties, one that negated the two-point conversion, another couple where Kelsey lost his head. And just an in- general inability to convert on, on third down. Uh, looking forward then, like this is a team that's still in a position to succeed. How do Kansas City go about fixing these problems, given that these are the things we know are endemic to Andy Reid teams? I think there's a degree to which they were doing an alteration to their offensive scheme live in the season, so they haven't bedded it in fully. Like There was a number of times, and I was fucking screaming at the telly when it was on, Hill was free and open downfield, and they weren't pushing the ball down there. Because I think they were so used to... and. Andy Reid's system is a kind of short to intermediate route type system that building in these long ones, they haven't necessarily got the progressions down pat on it. They haven't had a speedster like Tyreek Hill and stuff to deal with, but there were just, just bad decision making. Like the difference between what we saw on like the first drive from that chief's offense to then what we saw for the next four or five of them was just stark. Like these crazy, like you saw like the crazy train uh, line out where they lined up three guys in a row just to confuse them as to who was going to get the ball. And so like, that's exciting. That's good scheming. But I just, I just don't think he was reacting correctly to it. So in terms of them going forward, I think they've got a good core. They need to start looking at changing up the playbook and opening it up for other sections like that. There was a bit of stuff about players making stupid decisions. But the Kelsey thing, that was just that was just idiotic. I saw in the replays why he did it. There was pushing after the thing. But you just can't allow the, the moment to get to you like that. And Kelsey's had that happen once or twice this season. Sitting down those young players, getting it into their heads to cop the living fuck on. Building a little bit more of the medium to long rather than short to medium being the initial reads on stuff. And then also... Just a little bit of, in terms of the clock management at the tail end, I know what they were doing. They were feeling that they weren't able to stop them from scoring. And if the guys got a field goal, then they'd be okay. So I think their intention was to just try and get to overtime and let them get the ball first so that they could kick a field goal. And it was it was that fish fucking penalty on the two-point conversion that's, that, that, that murdered us. I, I, I do think he went down a little bit easy, but I also think it was holding. I'm not going to hold that against the refs or anything. They've got a good core. It's just about discipline at this point and allowing a bit of a change of the playbook. That makes sense. I want to say one thing that kind of worried me out of that game was uh, for the Chiefs, like they've been reliant on, like Tyreek Hill's done, like you said, he opened downfield so often, but what I thought was remarkable was that he got shut down in the return game. And I think you have to credit Vince Williams in Pittsburgh. Like I haven't seen a gunner yeah. do that to Tyreek Hill all season. Especially not a guy who's meant to be not that quick. Like. That's exactly it. It's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, I think the long fields kind of pose yeah. a bit of an issue for the Chiefs as well. Yeah, so there'll be a bit of work done on that. But uh, it was, it was interesting. I don't know whether it might be that they're getting lackadaisical in their punt protections, that they were trying to stay further upfield for front field blocking rather than following their blocks back or something. But uh but yeah, there's there's a couple of questions about that as well. Pissed off we're not there, but on balance, I think the the better team on the night one. It wasn't Pittsburgh that beat us, it was our offense not showing up that beat us in that game. I suppose with that, we'll move on to questions from the listeners. So a question this week comes in from Frank Grimes. I presume that's not his real name. Uh, we'll call him Grimey, though. Uh, <laughs> 
says, says uh, given Antonio Brown broadcasting the locker room, is this a concern that teams are going to have going forward with the access to social media? So in case people didn't see this, uh, Antonio Brown Facebook lived, I believe, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the speeches and talks in the locker room immediately after their win. Coach Tomlin called the Patriots assholes, uh, started a lot of swearing, was like, rah, 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 uh, and was basically... A type of conversation that you want to keep in-house, let's say. Uh, but Antonio Brown thought it was hilarious, videotaped it, put it up online, immediately then tried to, no, undo, undo, <laughs> where's the undo button? Uh, but the internet has it now, and it's there forever. Obviously, they still have come out and said there's going to be uh, repercussions for Mr. Brown, probably not extending to benching him for the championship game. Yeah, like I suppose, is... Is this a concern for teams moving forward, and is it something that they're going to have to take a stance on? To be honest, like I look at this, my take on this is it shouldn't really be a concern because it's a fucking boneheaded thing to do, and he shouldn't have done it in the first place. And most players should have enough cop on to not do it, or a single word of "don't fucking broadcast" our private conversations. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, it isn't because obviously the previous week um, they did something similar, but it was just the players that were celebrating in the locker room and talking among themselves. So, you know, there wasn't the same kind of repercussion. In terms of the actual effect of it, look, I mean, uh, they interviewed a couple of Patriots players about it. Like Don Hightower said, I, don't, I, I literally don't care. Julian Edelman was like, whatever, that's the Steelers <laughs> for you. And Belichick said, oh, I don't... I'm not a, on Instaface. You know, Snapface. I'm not on Snapface, <laughs> so I don't know what's happening. A bit of a media storm in a teacup eh, from that perspective, but certainly... Have something more important than just the coach firing up the team come out. There certainly could have been could have been bigger issues, um, and it is a bit silly. Uh, you know, you need to be circumspect about anything that can give your opponent the advantage. Not even so much on the psychological side of it or whatever bulletin board material or whatever nonsense people talk about. But again, he could have said something else that might have given something away about their game or, or whatever. We do see, to be honest, like we do see this stuff. A lot of this stuff get le- gets leaked to the media a lot anyway mm-hmm. from these kind of post post game talks or something gets said in the locker room. People find out. And that's like if, if, if there's reporters sitting outside the door waiting for access. If he's shouting assholes and they're gonna gonna go, oh, he's calling someone an asshole. Exactly. Let's yeah. speculate. <laughs> speculate wildly. So I guess at least we have the truth now. And I mean, he's not necessarily wrong. Even as patriots, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are kind of assholes. I think it's part of this. This is something I know we we clashed on this before about like the importance of old media versus social media. And I think this is. A, Again, I think this is an indication that the players' priorities lie with social media. They do try to use to engage with the fans. This was very clearly like Brown. Part of it, you know, just getting caught away in the moment, but also part of it being like, hey, this is really cool. Like, let's mm. show people what we're like when we win. Let's show people how awesome this is. Yeah. I'm having a great time. Let's all have a great time. I don't think you're going to see a stop to that. I think we might see some teams being like, right, no, whatever, no selfies in the locker room after games. Or you can't take your phone out or, or whatever. But I think in the long run, this kind of thing is going to be more and more frequently used and we do see for example NFL films sometimes little clips from locker room speeches and from balls being yeah. handed out that they'll distribute is my cynical side in the long run is we're going to see teams glom onto this and say right how can we make this into hashtag content yeah. more frequently and just try to exercise more control over the way this and when this is broadcast yeah like we've had chats about stuff like this beforehand about like players being accosted for interviews immediately walking off the field and being in the heat of the moment and saying stupid stuff people are fired up surely this is just an extension of that discussion we had before fits of maybe there should be a cooling off period between finishing up a game and then being broadcast on national media or on the internet or you'd be like James Harrison and go straight to the gym oh, <laughs> oh god don't even get me fucking started on that shit. It's a culture and a context thing. I think like Mike Tomlin has come out with a statement which is pretty much no holds barred. 
like laying into Antonio Brown, even suggesting that like you know that's the kind of thing where where players end up going to lots of different teams, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like they're going to cut Antonio Brown. Like <laughs> as much as you can, he laid into him, and I think it does come. Like I think to a certain extent, it is like as much. This is definitely the week where the contrast is stark. Like the Patriots are infamous for the fact that they are a close shop. Nothing gets out of New England. Nothing gets out of Foxborough that isn't approved by Bill Belichick. That is a tight ship. And Mike Tomlin, obviously coming into this week, made comments that obviously he, you know, as a coach, he's supposed to be all like, you know, I am the most boring person in the world. Great hustle. You know, we respect the other team. Obviously being shown to, you know, this is what I actually think. Here's what we're sharing. Like, here's what I actually think. Here's what we are need to do. And the fact that the very nature of the statement he was making is a complete opposition to what Antonio Brown did is obviously additionally annoying for him. Obviously, New England are the most successful team over the last decade. It's obviously hard for a team who wants to be a credible opponent, who wants to be a consistent opponent, not to believe. Like, they do that thing. That probably makes sense for them. There are some teams who booked the trend. Carolina booked the trend last year. The Seahawks probably booked the trend a bit. But I think, you know, for someone like Tomlin, it, it just kind of it stunk and it sent the wrong message and it sent an unprofessional message, which is exactly the wrong thing you want to do in the lead up to, like, you know, the, what, what they hope is the second most important of the game and especially against the opponent that they have. So I think there's just a lot of contextual stuff which makes this particularly bad for them. Yeah, no, of course. Like, so as I said, we probably expect to see this being controlled more, not necessarily banned, but maybe staged a little bit more, controlled message a little bit more. Uh, like, like, oh yeah, we just won that game. I'm so glad we all stayed in school and didn't do drugs, <laughs> right, guys? Also, there, there, was, there, was corner, like, there was one good hot day from Gil Brandt, uh, noted old person on NFL.com, <laughs> where he said, uh, Jeremy Kramer taped Lombardi's post-game speech to the team after Super Bowl II. Only difference, no Facebook Live back then. <laughs> <laughs> good content, good content. Super Bowl two, you know? Well, <laughs> well man, maybe, maybe. But yeah, so thanks for that. Uh, as I said, yeah, it'll be controlled, but it probably won't be stopped. Let's move on and look at the championship games. So, first up, we've got uh, Green Bay at Atlanta. This game's going to be good. I've taken Green Bay and the pair you guys have taken Atlanta. I was very close to taking Atlanta in this because I do think they're a top-to-bottom team. But I've just got that, I've got that weird feeling in the belly that uh, it's going to be a shootout and it's going to end up landing with, oh no, there's 12 seconds left. They're on their own two-yard line. Can he make it happen this time? Oh, he's done it somehow. This is going to be a shootout, isn't it? This is going to be exciting. I hope so. You think so. Um, for me, and I agree with you, that also, obviously you can never count out Aaron Rodgers and pulling something out of his ass. But for me right now, it's, like you said, Atlanta are top to bottom a better team. And although obviously Green Bay have an advantage of quarterback, Matt Ryan has also had an absolute career year. He is playing the best football he has ever played. And while he's not going to pull a ridiculous Hail Mary out that he's drawn up himself on his hand, what he is going to do is he's going to consistently deliver passes on time to open receivers. He is going to move the ball and the team up and down the field with regularity and with consistency. He has a plethora of options around him. Um, we've seen Green Bay are struggling again on the back end. If Julio Jones is even 80%, he can still be a contributor in that. Again, we've seen guys come on this season, like I've already mentioned, um, who can be weapons. And we know what the running backs can do, both in the receiving and the running game. And we've all seen, again, a defense that has, has, has stiffened up a bit. Mm. Perhaps put Aaron Rodgers out of his comfort zone and make him work the magic a little more and hope that that isn't going to hit home every single time, because it, it, it can't. The other thing is that if Atlanta build up a little lead and get a little bit ahead, which they may do with this being at home. As much as Green Bay are a team that can come back from anything in theory, if it comes down to 
controlling the game. Like Rona said, Green Bay are a team that are in no way stuck to control the game. Atlanta can do that a little bit. They have talent in running backs. They have a lot of talent in that short passing game. This is a team that, if they need to, is better set up to control the clock than Green Bay. So if Green Bay start pacing them or start going out ahead, we're going to see a shootout. We're going to see some kind of shootout either way. But if Atlanta uh, are the team with the early advantage and have the initiative, they're in a much better position to at least make their scoring take longer to control the ball more, make it less likely that Aaron Rodgers is going to have all of those opportunities that we saw him have uh, last week to put points on the board. So that, to me, is, is enough to give Atlanta the edge, is to say there's enough talent all over this roster to help their quarterback out when he needs it, and he's going to need all the help he can get. Both quarterbacks are going to need all the help they can get in this game. Okay. What about yourself, Fitz? Yeah, like I would agree with most of you, Harry, and I think I would, I would emphasize that like that defensive... When Dallas came back, Dez Bryant is being marked by like Gutter. Like Gunter, that's not even like a real name. That's, that's not even a real cornerback. Like just Demarius Rand was busy hobbling around as the other cornerback, and obviously Morgan Burnett, their strong safety, was off the field at that point. Like when Dallas realized that they could just throw the ball, like even though it's obviously very tempting to use the Kelly Elliott, they just blew them away, and they, they came back, and they, they got a huge amount of points. Matt Ryan isn't going to make that mistake. Matt Ryan isn't going to be like, oh, we should, maybe we should wait and do the run game. Matt Ryan is going to strike at the Julio Jones, and Julio Jones is going to get a crap ton of yards, and they're going to absolutely devastate this Green Bay defense. And I think Harry's right. Like I think just the amount of pressure that the Atlanta offense is going to put on that defense, the amount of points they're going to do, just means that Green Bay just won't be able to keep up. Because I, think, like, I don't think the Atlanta defense is great, but they have shown that they can get pressure. They have shown that Vic Beasley is a good player. They have a lot of players. I think they're missing Claiborne, which is problematic. Mm. But I think there's also a few like niggling injuries there along the Green Bay offensive line that might affect them. And that should be enough to basically allow Atlanta to build up enough of a lead attritionally over the game that it's going to be like like Aaron Rodgers is going to really have to be at the very pinnacle of powers to be able to keep up with that. And it's just it's hard to go against Atlanta, especially in the George Dome, especially with that uh, with that home advantage at this stage. So like I wouldn't be surprised if Green Bay did it because Aaron Rodgers is, like is operating at such a high level, but he's literally going to have to carry a ailing secondary, an offensive line with issues, and with with, with his receivers all dealing with issues of their own if they play at all. It's just a lot of cards stacked against Aaron Rodgers, but if anyone can overcome it, I suppose it's him. What's the, uh, what scoreline do you expect? Uh, just how many points can you... Name, name a, like a multiple of seven <laughs> against uh, a multiple of seven minus four or something like that. <laughs> that's close. <laughs> 42-38. Ooh, that's interesting. I am also going for 42-38. Yeah, 42-38 for me as well. 40, I had 42 in my head for Atlanta as well. I don't know what's going on with that. Weird. I was thinking something along the lines of 40, 42-35 was what I had in my, mm. in my head at that point. Fair enough, yeah. Uh, I think it should be should, should be exciting. So, so, we're, like, so we're all going for the over on 70 points anyway. But yeah, no, it should be, should be a very exciting game anyway. I think we're all looking forward to that one. Uh, the next game, Pittsburgh at New England. Uh, we've taken New England across the board. I don't know. I just think... I think seeing Pittsburgh playing in cold weather last week, there's a good offense there, but I'm not sure if there's a good enough offense there. Uh, like, Harry, this is your team, so I'll let you kind of take the rundown on this one. Yeah, well, we've done well against the Steelers recently, albeit I don't think we faced a fully equipped Steelers in, in a while. Um, but over the last few seasons, we certainly seem to be able to do enough to beat them. A lot of it is the home field advantage. It's very, very difficult in the playoffs. Teams get up to Foxborough. It's very cold. It's uh, it's a difficult crowd to play in, and Brady at home has just got a phenomenal record. For me, like the thing is, is that our weakness doesn't really match up with the Steelers' strength. 
as I mentioned earlier, Pittsburgh haven't been the best at applying that kind of pressure up the middle, which is where uh, Houston showed that New England are still vulnerable. And we've seen um, Malcolm Butler in the past do a d- decent job against Antonio Brown. Our corners are coming to form, but McCourt still playing at a very high level. So it's going to be difficult for them to move the ball downfield. Our run defense has been really, really good this season. Um, I've, I've loved how they've been able to play. Um, I don't think you're going to see Lev Bell be able to gash us in the same way that he was at Kansas City. This is something we said last week as well. We were concerned about the KC run defense and less concerned about New England, more concerned about their pass defense. The way the linebackers play and move around, the way we bring pressure, as Ronan flagged earlier, we're not like an all-out blitz to try and get the quarterback. We, we don't really blitz that much when we do it tends to be sort of corner blitzes and, and tricks like that. We do is we, we have the linebackers dropping off uh, sort of in coverage, uh, but also keeping an eye on the running backs. So guys like you're gonna see guys like Donta Hightower, like Van Noy, Landon Roberts trying to like lock down. Le'Veon Bell, and I think he's going to find it much tougher sledding than he did than he did against Kansas City. And then at that point, you're going to have to let Roethlisberger throw the ball, and therein is the problem in that this is not an easy game to be throwing the ball, and this is not a game where you want to be throwing the ball. A, That's a my times. concern in this. And that, I think, is going to make it very, very difficult for Pittsburgh. In terms of New England's offense versus Pittsburgh's defense, I think we have to look at last week as an aberration. Obviously, if New England play like that again, or, or just Pittsburgh play like they did again, this could be a very bad game. Oh, yeah. So let's hope that doesn't happen. But we have been... Consistently able to move the chains. We did see one drive against Houston where everything clicked, and it was magnificent. They just weren't able to replicate that for any of the rest of the game. And Pittsburgh have been having some problems in the secondary recently. Uh, they're fine, but they don't have sort of standouts there. They do have, obviously, in, in guys like Shazir and Bud Dupree, a very, very talented linebacking core that could make it difficult for us to run the ball. But again, we've been able to go away from that. We did go away from that against Houston, and it was able to work. So I think we're going to see a lot more sort of from the receivers here. And, you know, if, if Danny Amendola could stop dropping the ball, that would also be fantastic. And we are a coverage team primarily on defense. What happens when Ben Rossberg doesn't get wide receivers open? He runs and runs and runs around in the pocket and then he gets hurt. Yep. And I think that's going to be difficult for him to pull off uh, that successfully against New England. Like this for me is one where I think you're right that they're going to, that New England are going to have a better job done against their running game. But I think they're still going to get quite a lot out of it as well. My concern is mostly down to the idea of Ben having to throw in this game. I think he's had secretly not the best year in the world. Maybe not so secretly if you've been watching their games all that closely. <laughs> I think he had a bit of a sticker last week. Even even in the Dolphins game, he wasn't all that exciting. If you can force him into those spots, I think New England are set up nicely to try and deal with that. I think that was possibly what caused them some of their stalling last uh, last week as well against the Chiefs. It was kind of... Ben wanting it to shift back to him and to try and use him a little bit more. And I think that's where you're going to get him. I think New England's offense, like you said, is going to be able to fire better against them. The defense, while it does a decent job in Pittsburgh, isn't of the level that the Texans' defense is. So you're not going to have the same pressure being put on you. You're going to have a bit more space to get your players open for rhythm routes and stuff. So I think that's going to play well to the New England strength. And also, just purely, New England are at home. It's going to be cold. It's going to be the temperatures that they're used to and the temperatures that as much as Pittsburgh likes to say they're a hard-nosed cold team, we saw their offense underperform in the cold several times this season. So I'm going to give the edge to New England on that basis. Fitz? For Pittsburgh, I think it all comes down to whether Lev Bell can, can basically be the running back that we think he can be. This is the game where all the injuries and all of the suspensions uh, to the Pittsburgh receiving core will really come true and, and hurt Ben Roethlisberger at, at, at this critical point. Like, if there's anyone who can scheme away Levy and Bell, who's basically been unstoppable over the second half of the season, it is the Dark Lord, Bill Belichick, obviously considered to be a defensive mastermind, obviously one of the best coach to ever coach in the NFL. He will do everything he needs to do to stop him, and it's hard to pick against him. 
the only teams who have really managed to succeed against New England at this stage uh, in Foxborough are teams who have elite defences. The Pittsburgh defence has definitely come on like leaps and bounds over the second half of the season, but they are still relying on like you know 37, 30, whatever age James Harrison is, uh, like as an, like an OLB to try and do things. I think. Like when it comes down to it, OLB more like OAP. Am I right? They're they're a good defense, and they've got a lot of pieces who are only going to get better as the years go on. Like I'm thinking, Shea's years already like at high level, probably going to be talking about All Pro level uh, going forward. But I I don't think this is their year. I think the experience of Tom Brady, the experience of Bill Belichick, and basically the defense fronting up and doing enough means that Ben Roethlisberger will be forced to throw it and I think at that point uh, Antonio Brand won't be enough to save him and I think you know that pretty much lines up with you like I just think in terms of coaching it's just hard to go against New England unless you have elite defence Pittsburgh don't have that so you have to give it So what are you thinking score wise Fitz? Thinking 24 24-13 Okay what about you? I have something similar I have 26-14 no okay. that's not right 27-14 sorry I have 28, anyway. 18, yes, I'm going to go 28-18. I think it should be it should be an enjoyable game. Like It could well be, if they come out and they get their stuff going, this could be a bit of a shootout as well, because um, it is that thing if these are two offences that can go off, so we'll see how that goes. But again, it should be, should be an exciting game. And it also means that uh, Green Bay, are, regardless of the outcome of the game, playing a Super Bowl they've had before, and they've won before. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. both New England and Tampa. But yeah, bit of fun. But no, that should be good crack. So any uh, any other scouting with yourself, lads? Any crack this week? No, no, just betting in prep for that prep for that championship game. I got a good night's sleep last night. Oh, Came home, fell asleep at eight, woke up at half eight. <laughs> Solid Amazing. twelve hours. But yeah, it yourself fits any scandal this week? No, quite enough. Probably have to take the, the day off on Monday to try and soak in the uh, NFL championship weekend. Yeah, and obviously all the preparations for Super Bowl weekend, which is. Uh, even busier due to a stag that's also been uh, put on that weekend. But also, most importantly, we have to lay our foundations for Pro Bowl weekend. Of yeah, course. Pro Bowl weekend. The best, the best we can have. Yeah. Next week's Let's podcast just... is going to mostly be Pro Bowl preparation. I know it's the one you've all been waiting for, the Pro Bowl special. Hopefully we get sorted out uh, whenever tickets launch for Run the Jewels. That'll be mm. Run the Jewels tickets go on sale on Friday, so we're gonna have to get tickies for that. That's gonna be I've good always thought Julian Edelman like missed a trick by not building that into his online content. Uh, I suppose, yeah. Run the Jewels. Also, I I'm discussing with you right now building it into his online content. Who are you? What have you done with Harry? Uh, I would like to job. I work social media. If any NFL teams are hiring, I don't swear this much on the internet. Oh god. <laughs> when I'm paid to. I just create hashtag content. Julian um, Edelman's got a pretty good Instagram, in fairness. Fair enough. Now I've got a German buddy coming over from the Bundesbank uh, on Friday, so we're going to. Um, sorry if you're not around. Come along. They're doing the. Uh, the Open Gate Brewery in uh, Guinness, so it's their new one. Oh, it's only sort of experimental beer. Yeah, all the, all the ones that they do. It, they, the, the beer lineup swaps every week. Um, basically, whatever they're doing, it's where they try out new brews and new ideas. And most of them just end up getting marketed to other areas, but some of them come in here. So, like the rye ale and stuff that they now sell came from that, and oh, Pop House came from there. But there's a lot of really nice looking ones in there. So there's like oatmeal and vanilla stouts and stuff like that there. It's a bit, bit fancy for me now. Oh, yeah, but it'd be a bit of crack. Like, so uh, we get a tour around the brewery and a taster board of some of the beers. And then the bar is there with all the experimental beers, like six quid for a ticket. So like, it's going to be a bit of crack. If you yeah, fancy tipping along, it should be good fun. Um, but outside of that, yeah, nothing else. Well, I'll probably watch the rugby on Saturday and then obviously football Sunday. But yeah, sure, I suppose that'll do it for this week because we're going to have a lot of football cover next week as well. Uh, so it's bye from me, bye from Harry. See ya. Bye from Roland. 
Bye. This has been all four quarters. Uh, thanks for listening, and I suppose we'll talk to you next week.